Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, and a pleasant, pleasant Thursday to you. It is the final day of the month of April, and aren't we happy to see this month fall into the history books? To be sure, interesting times, trying times, exciting times, times of great opportunity. We're trying to sort of... um, put more of a positive swim or spin on our uh, current set of circumstances. And as we do so, it's great to welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Coming up a little bit later on, we're going to be joined by a dear friend and certainly no stranger to the KFAX audience. Pat Chen is going to join us, founder and president of First Love Ministries. As you know, Pat has a major heartbeat for prayer and prayer ministry. And uh, coming up next week, we're going to be marking the National Day of Prayer. That'll be one week from today on Thursday, May the 7th. And boy, if there was ever a time for our nation to be called to prayer, this is certainly such a time. So Pat Chen's going to talk to us a bit about um, prayer efforts taking place. And while there might not be the usual massive gatherings at churches and around flagpoles or in Washington, D.C., as we are accustomed to, um, prayer warriors are going to gather together virtually through the Internet and uh, wherever they might be in their prayer closets on that date. And we'll find out more when Pat Chen joins us later on in tonight's program. Pat Fatucci will also drop by for an update on Wall Street. The Federal Market Open Committee, as you know, left the overnight lending rates uh, where they're at, basically between zero and 25 basis points. Um, What does all this mean? Ironically, with all the negative news, we've seen one of the best years on Wall Street in well over 30 years. You might say, Craig, I don't feel like it. Well, we'll find out why it did when Pat Tatucci joins us coming up later on tonight. You might have seen the story, hundreds of protesters carrying signs outside the state capitol, not here in California, thankfully, but in Lansing, Michigan. And it all happened today while the legislature was debating an extension of Governor Whitmer's state emergency response to the coronavirus pandemic. Protesters held signs, waved American flags, and even called for the reopening of businesses. While meanwhile, here closer to home in California, business owners have filed suit against Governor Newsom and other California officials over the coronavirus closures. Lawsuit alleging that these forced shutdowns, such as we've experienced since mid-March, have really impacted the rights of small businesses, violating their civil rights, and having, of course, a long-term economic impact. It is certainly a difficult quandary for any politician, any policymaker, to try to weigh the health interests of a nation with the financial interests of a nation. 
Let's talk a bit about some of the challenges and whether or not a lawsuit of this sort is even necessarily viable as we're joined by the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, Pete Peterson. Pete, always good to have you with us on the program. And I I suppose as much as what we saw happening today in Lansing, Michigan, um, is also playing out in states all over the Union, as in spite of all the health toll, many Americans are getting frustrated by the financial toll of this virus. That's right, Craig, and great to be with you again. I think we always knew that when the shelter-in-home or shelter-in-place orders went out, all around the country, there was going to be a tipping point where we saw people exasperated, uh, both just personally, psychologically, not being able to get out and about, but certainly from a financial perspective, as we are beginning to see now these unemployment numbers um, just cascading uh, from around the country. Uh, that that people were going to begin to question uh, these policies, why they were put in place, and really in so many ways how much of a patchwork they are in what is declared an essential business versus a non-essential business. And, of course, that's what's at the root of this lawsuit that you mentioned uh, lodged by these uh, small business owners against the governor. The big challenge here, and boy, are you uniquely equipped to help answer this question. The big challenge here is that typically as politicians and members of the legislature and so forth, they they all um, on a day-to-day basis have to weigh legislation and policy decisions that, that impact their constituents. And typically, historically, we have someone or something to turn to. If we can't talk to an older, more mature, more experienced um, politician or statesperson, we certainly have history to turn to. In this Mm -hmm. case, we don't have any recent history, and no one alive even remembers how we managed to make our or get our way through the 1918 flu pandemic beyond what we read in the history books, but it certainly doesn't begin to prepare us for something like this. So what, what do policymakers rely on to make these very weighty and consequential decisions? Well, you know, uh, Craig, there's, you know, it's been lost to history, but you're beginning to see more and more references to the 1957-1958 pandemic, which uh, was was dubbed the H2N2 virus. And while we don't haven't talked a lot about it. It actually, as a percentage of the population, had a much greater impact uh, from a medical standpoint in both deaths and illnesses on the American population than what we're experiencing currently. Um, you're right to say that in in many ways we're we don't have a lot of history, even with that experience, uh, to go on, but. I think we're, what we're beginning to see is that policymakers, and we certainly teach this at the policy school, is you've got to be very careful about to what degree you lean on policy, uh, political or medical in this case, medical experts, uh, to make public policy. Um, the founder of this school here, the late Dr. James Q. Wilson, once said, you always as a policymaker, want the experts on tap, but not on top. And I think, unfortunately, in a lot of the decisions that have been made around these uh, stay-at-home and business closure orders, uh, we're, we're leaning and relying too much on medical experts who are very good at what they know, 
but aren't necessarily aware of the other trade-offs that are being made uh, economically that have their own uh, physical, uh, emotional, and medical uh, implications to them. Does this perhaps set up an entirely new paradigm moving forward? Certainly we'd like to hope that we've seen the last of this. Suggestions are that we may not be through the woods yet, that this could come back again in the fall, or we could see other types of pandemics, maybe not necessarily mimicking the COVID-19 virus, but something along that lines in terms of of future impact. Does this create a, a whole new arena where policy experts, policymakers really need to gather together and gain deeper understanding across all sides of the spectrum? Because as you point out, Pete, it's not just a question of the economics, it's the question of the health, and it's the question of sustainability. And, you know, at one level, we'd like to encourage small businesses, the number one employer in America, and yet sadly, small businesses, as we've seen in this current experience, are not only taking it on the chin, but then when they line up to get help, they find out, guess what, that's really not all abundantly available either. No, you're so right, Craig. You know, it, it really strikes me. I've, I've given so much thought to this, especially over the last month. We've seen a dramatic surge in the applications here to the Graduate Policy Program. I think we're double the number of applications here uh, for fall classes over last year. And I can only attribute that to um, what the, the kinds of factors that you're talking about is that we're seeing a a generation in their 20s and early 30s that, uh, for a variety of reasons, are beginning to think differently about their own careers and understanding that this is really a a public policy uh, discussion, if not a public policy set of debates that's happening all the way from international policy and international relations uh, to the local, to the most local levels. And I think at each one of those levels, we're going to be moving into a post-COVID-19 world in, the, in some of the same ways that we moved into a post-9-11 world. Sometimes we forget um, the, all the radical changes that came into our, our policy uh, and politics after 9-11, everything from international relations to the creation of the Department of Homeland Security to how we travel to how we build buildings. All of these changes came in after 9-11, and it could easily be argued that the pandemic is is much more global in nature, certainly much more national in nature in its impact uh, than 9-11 was. So I think we are going to see a very different uh, post-pandemic policy and political world that's going to need a new generation of leaders to respond to it. Clearly so. And, you know, it's beyond simply a matter of mitigation to prevention. But as you point out, uh, the nuances here, not just the way it impacts uh, John and Mary's home, family, their personal economy, what it does to a community, to a state, to a nation, to global politics, global trade. I mean, will we rethink now the, the whole notion that we're all one world, we're all engaged in, in supporting each other in terms of uh, trade practices, and, and how will that be impacted? So it's every aspect from things that are very obvious to many more things that are kind of down below the radar screen but are equally impactful, particularly when it comes to the individual lives of Americans. For that degree, to that degree, 
Pete, for folks that are eavesdropping right now that are maybe on the heels of this experience thinking, you know, uh, maybe I need to get serious about seeking a career path that can help, that can leave an impact, make an everlasting difference. And the notion of entering into the public policy arena, particularly with all the new challenges that are going to be presented and need answers moving ahead, tell us briefly about what's offered at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Well, thanks, Craig. Yes, here at Pepperdine, we certainly are preparing uh, that next generation of leaders, those who are going to be stepping into a post-pandemic world. And whether it's in international relations, we have alums of the program working in the State Department and international NGOs uh, at the national level, working on Capitol Hill or at uh, conservative think tanks, uh, or at state and local levels, working in local government and crisis management and emergency response. Uh, I I had my own life and career changed by 9-11, and uh, again, I think in some similar ways, we are seeing a new generation of of, uh, of folks who are reconsidering uh, their own calling to public service, and, and we stand ready to prepare that next generation. I've always believed what you do is critically important, but boy, has that been kicked up a few notches in, in recent weeks. We appreciate so much the time, and I want to encourage listeners, as you think about engaging in life choices and career choices that can literally impact not just the world around us, but impacted for generations to come, maybe consider becoming a student of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Information available on the web at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Our thanks to Pete Peterson, the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, for joining us for that update. 5.18 on the clock. Let's get you an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. As you know, we've been following the impact of the COVID-19 situation here in the Bay Area very closely. And of great interest has been the impact on hurting families, homeless families, and what this means. Certainly in any kind of a shelter environment, the first question you raise is, well, how do people fend for themselves? How does all of this work? Well, to give us an update and to offer some answers, Reverend John Anderson, the executive director of the Bay Area Rescue Mission, joins us. And John, as we met last, you indicated that uh, the uptick in things like providing meals alone was putting a, a pretty big strain on the staff at a time when a lot of your staff has, out of an abundance of caution, been told to stay home. Give us an update. Uh, Craig, thanks so much for asking. Uh, things at the Bay Area Rescue Mission have changed significantly, uh, especially in the light of the corona 19, uh, coronavirus, COVID-19. You know, in, in the last uh, six weeks, Craig, we have actually seen nearly 400 people accept Christ as their Savior. You know, people come to the re- rescue mission often looking for a place to get a meal, to spend a few nights, uh, emergency shelter, and quite often uh, in fitting to an evening chapel service, uh, getting involved with the mission, uh, 
many of them will accept Christ as their Savior. They see the great need that they have in their lives, being homeless and being desperate. But during the last uh, six or seven weeks now, uh, those numbers have dramatically increased during a season when we normally would not see that kind of activity. The number of meals that we were serving uh, up until a couple, uh, about a week ago, uh, had increased by nearly 30%. And then as uh, government officials uh, from, from our state, from the governor's office, from the county health department, from uh, the county health departments of seven of the nine counties that touched the bay, uh, started to put in place uh, more restrictions on shelter-in-place and initiating their own housing elements, uh, we've seen a significant drop-off in the number of meals that we're needing to provide right now because the county uh, basically has moved people from our short-term emergency shelter, uh, which I will say we had zero positive uh, results on the coronavirus uh, outbreak. They've uh, moved people from our short-term emergency shelter into hotels uh, in different parts of Contra Costa County. And uh, so what we have going on right now is our long-term recovery program for the homeless and needy that came in, uh, wanted help in changing their lives uh, beyond just short-term emergency shelter. So we're discipling them and helping them through Bible studies and uh, a lot of different activities that help them to get their lives back on track. Uh, so that activity is in full act, full force, a uh, lot going on there. But uh, we feel somewhat heartbroken to a certain degree that when a homeless person comes up to the rescue mission, uh, today and ask if we have a place that they could spend the night, we have to tell them because of the county's order that, uh, I'm sorry, we can't do any new intakes uh, for the homeless and needy. And the question that they usually ask is, well, then where can we go? And the truth of the matter is because of the county's ordinance and orders, from the health department, we have to tell them there's no place that you can go right now. That uh, the county has restricted every uh, homeless shelter agency in the county from doing any intake of homeless people. And uh, they won't even do intake of new homeless people at the hotel systems. So we're trying to work through all of that while still maintaining our long-term recovery programs. And, uh, yeah, honestly, Craig, I went out uh, about a week ago and bought a hundred sleeping bags, a hundred pup tents, pretty inexpensive, a uh, hundred New Testaments with the Psalm and Proverbs, uh, some meal vouchers, different things like that, and we are providing people that come to our doors uh, right now with uh, 
the sleeping bag, a tent, a New Testament, food, and water, and uh, saying, look, we would love to have you stay with us. We truly would. It's what we do as a ministry. But because of the county's orders from the health department, we can't do that for the time being. We tell them about Jesus. We share the gospel with them. Many are still getting saved. They, they understand the desperate situation that they're in. And uh, so that, that's, that's a lot to digest there, Craig. It, it, it is indeed, and, and as, as much as I'm hearing you indicate that a lot of the current health regulations are stifling a lot of the ministry that normally takes place on a routine basis um, physically inside the doors of the Bay Area Rescue Mission, you're able to do things outside. That's encouraging. I think maybe the, the wake-up call here is the realization and I'm sure this is already going through your mind and the minds of the staff, and that is that once the, the shelter-in-place orders are relaxed, the impact to the economy of the San Francisco Bay Area, much as it has been and will be across the nation, where we see upwards of 30 million people that have filed unemployment and folks that are wondering how are they going to pay the rent and recognizing that even with a stimulus check of $1,200 in the Bay Area, that doesn't pay the rent that the need to minister to needy families. And I think what we're going to see, John, is an explosion in the number of homeless individuals and families in the coming months in the aftermath of this COVID-19 pandemic. And that's where the work of the Bay Area Rescue Mission is really going to become vitally important, desperately important. And I think it's going to be vitally important that we as the church stand with your ministry to make sure that you have the tools and resources you need to meet that what will surely be a major long-term crisis. Uh, we absolutely agree, Craig. We're planning for that. We're in the process of getting ready for it. We were starting to see, in fact, we were significantly significantly seeing the impact uh, when it was, you know, we were talking about 12 or 13, 14 million people that were unemployed. Now we're at 26 million or more nationwide. Uh, you know, our, our numbers were increasing significantly before these new restrictions were put in place. And you're absolutely right. We're going to see record numbers of people who are homeless, who have lost their jobs, and those jobs, some of them won't be coming back, uh, that have lost their homes, and they're hungry, they're hurting. Uh, it's a great opportunity to share the gospel. It, it truly is. Uh, and to reach out and try to help people as best we can, uh, to walk with the Lord, to know the Lord, and to reclaim uh, a bit of normalcy in their lives. Well, that's going to be a challenge, no doubt, for all of us. And, John, I know that you need to run to another appointment, so I don't want to keep you, but I do appreciate you taking the time to update our listeners. And folks have called and wondering, what's going on? How can we help the Bay Area Rescue Mission? And uh, as you're understanding here from our conversation with its executive director, John Anderson, it's a fluid situation. But it's one that certainly is beginning to emerge with a picture that's indicative of the idea that once things return to normal, I'm using my air quotes here with my fingers, normal, 
life will be changed greatly across the country and certainly in the Bay Area. And there are going to be people that are going to be badly hurt by this financially, who are going to be challenged in terms of their health, and all of whom are going to be in the need of a message of hope. We attempt to deliver that every day here at KFAX, and we partner with important ministries that are on the front lines of that kind of crisis help and hope delivery every day. So we encourage you to pray for Reverend Anderson and the team at the Bay Area Rescue Mission, and <coughs> pardon me, and to think about supporting this ministry organization. Um, there will be, in a very short order, an opportunity to strengthen the uh, the tent stakes, as Scripture says, and to ready the house for the onslaught of need, physical need, need for housing, need for hope, and a message of encouragement. And so be in prayer for the Bay Area Rescue Mission and stand with them financially. Information available on the web about their fantastic work at bayarearescue.org forward slash donate. That's bayarearescue.org. Our thanks to Reverend John Anderson, the Executive Director of the Bay Area Rescue Mission, for giving us an update. It's amazing and challenging times, to be sure. Time when we need, as a nation, the people, to be seriously in prayer. We'll talk about that coming up next. Pat Chen joins us as Lifeline continues. Right now, though, let's pause and get you an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. As I indicated, one week from today is National Day of Prayer. It occurs the first Thursday in May every year. And um, this year's observance, perhaps one of the most critical that we've seen, certainly in my lifetime. Oh, down through the years, we've been through a lot of challenges, to be sure, in times of war, times of attacks and terrorism acts against the United States. We've experienced as Americans tragic loss of life and gone through really and survived the gambit. But this is all new territory. It's uncharted waters. And in the midst of all of the death and destruction, there's also hope. And there is a tremendous opportunity for the church to rise up as such a time as this. Joining me now is the founder and president of First Love Ministries, many, many years, a dear friend, and of course, a very familiar voice to KFAX listeners. Reverend Pat Chen joins us. Pat, how are you? Hi there, Craig. I'm so happy to hear your voice. And and you as well. And uh, sorry that we're separated by all the, the distance, but certainly not separated in spirit nor in heart. Um, Pat, well, uh, like, I'm looking forward like, to like, seeing you, actually. Like like so many of us, we're we're struggling to try and make sense out of all this, and I hope ultimately, as the church, trying to all make, also make sure that we don't spurn what may be one of the most critical opportunities for the church to rise and shine and share the message of the gospel and hope with others that are literally staring their own mortality in the face and not knowing what to do or how to respond. Mm-hmm. You're right. We are definitely in a, a very, very critical time. In fact, 
this National Day of Prayer um, is truly um, one of the most significant times um, that we've ever had. I actually call it, um, it's in a very strategic time. With the world pandemic, with uh, all across our U.S. Uh, and all across the world, we all are facing um, making a lot of major decisions, a lot of changes in our lives, and of course, many of us don't know from day to day what um, is coming. But we do know the Lord, and in terms of the hope that we have, and for those of us that have been praying for the U.S. and praying for the world for all these many years. We are in the midst of seeing negativity and all the, um, you know, just all the bad things that have been happening around us. We are very, very encouraged because we see God moving in the lives of so many. We, we're seeing the beginnings of um, revival because people are praying now, uh, Craig, much more than we've ever seen. We hear about so many things going on in the area of prayer and, and especially doing it in a, such a different way. So uh, this particular year for the National Day of Prayer, we're going to be doing some things differently than we've done in the past. And tell us about that. Well, what's happening, uh, since we're not uh, able to meet, uh, you know, in large groups, uh, in most places, though there are some states that are opening up, uh, for the most part, um, a lot of states are still not opening up uh, where people can gather. And even those states that are opening up, uh, there's still, um, you know, the six-foot uh, difference, you know, in terms of the uh, uh, social um, spacing there. And so what we're seeing that we're needing to communicate by Zoom, uh, by teleconferences, uh, you know, to use our YouTube. Um, there's just so many different ways technology-wise that we are coming together in prayer. And so instead of coming together uh, and doing the types of things we would have been doing um, this, you know, over the years, uh, for instance, we would have had a special meeting on Tuesday night um, before the National Day of Prayer. We would have had a special meeting going on on Wednesday, and then the actual National Day of Prayer, we would have had a large gathering. Uh, in the Capitol building that we've had over the years. Um, and this particular year, we were planning on having um, the Museum of the Bible. But instead, there's going to be a, a major national broadcast uh, that we can come together across the U.S. And then, of course, many people can, um, you know, uh, click on uh, nationaldayofprayer.org, and they can join us uh, from anywhere in the world. And what time will that be taking place? Is it going to be um, coordinated by time zone or taking place nationally at the same time? It's going to be taking place um, at uh, from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock um, East Coast time, Eastern Standard Time. So whatever Eastern Standard Time is for you across the nation, or like I said, even parts of the world, um, uh, then you'll be able to tune in to that national broadcast. And uh, it's going to be really uh, wonderful to be able to uh, come together uh, in a variety of ways uh, with people from all across the nation um, and to pray together. Boy, it's sounding like I may have to gear up the recording equipment. That'll be uh, 5 o'clock in the morning here, California time. And uh, I don't know how many. Well, of course, the Bay Areans don't have any reason to get up to go to work. Why not get up early? <laughs> well. Um, it's 8, 8 p.m. 
8 p.m. to 10 p.m., so I'm sorry if I didn't make that clear. It will be uh, East Coast time, 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Oh, 8 to 10 p.m. Oh, got it, got it, got it. I thought it was a.m. I thought, boy, that's bright and early. <laughs> okay, no. so from 8, p- 8 to 10 p.m. East Coast time, that's perfect. Puts it right at 5 o'clock here in California. Yes, and perhaps um, you'll be connected with us. We're certainly going to look into doing that because I think it's important, Pat, for Americans all across the nation to be connected. As you point out, this is a unique crossroads, and this can be an opportunity. In spite of all the tragic loss of life, the impact to our economy, and so much of a sense of of doubt about the future, and concerns about whether or not this will even come back for a second visit in the fall, has many people very worried, and I think searching for answers. And most importantly, I think many of us are being confronted by our own sense of mortality. What does that mean? And how reliant are we on our Creator to give us life, to sustain the life that He's given us, and to be able to survive through these trying times? So the church coming together, gathering, repenting, praying, seeking God's face, going before the throne of grace, and then being engaged in being the church not just doing the church and getting out there and sharing the good news of Christ. This is a critical, critical crossroads. Pat, for folks that want to get more information about your prayer ministry, where can they find you on the web? Firstloveprayer.net is my website. And, of course, going back again to the nationaldayofprayer.org. And, in fact, uh, Craig, let me share with you, uh, God TV will also be broadcasting this uh, Daystar, movie broadcasting, and, of course, Facebook Live. And um, uh, Kathy Brenzel, who's our new president for the National Day of Prayer, and Will Graham will be hosting this particular national broadcast. So um, uh, they will connect with a lot of uh, key leaders from uh, across the nation, and many of them that You've probably, in fact, I know that you know of them, um, Luis, Luis Palau and uh, his, his son, Andrew Palau, and um, uh, Nick Hall and Michael W. Smith and uh, Billy uh, Wilson from Oral Roberts University and a variety of others just really feel that um, this particular uh, broadcast um, will be tremendous, especially there'll be intercessors, uh, not necessarily that you'll know their name, but there'll be many intercessors that will be uh, praying uh, different prayer huddles. Uh, There'll be a variety of things within that two hours that will um, lead others to pray with us. So it won't be just these key leaders uh, sharing and praying, but also uh, uh, intercessors from across the U.S. to pray. Certainly good to hear and um, a good challenge for all of us. Again, the date is one week from today. That's Thursday, May the 5th, the annual National Day of Prayer. Information available on the web at nationaldayofprayer.org. That's nationaldayofprayer.org. And, of course, you can reach Pat Chen directly at firstloveprayer.net. Firstloveprayer.net. Our thanks to Pat Chen, the founder and president of First Love Ministries, for that update on the all-important National Day of Prayer. 5.47 on the clock, an update now on traffic. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. My good buddy Pat Tucci is going to uh, step up to the microphone here and join us for a bit of an update. It's been a Wall Street seesaw ride yet once again this week, though generally some good news as Wall Street comes off of the biggest monthly surge in over 30 years and the Fed continues to leave the overnight lending rate exactly as they are. And Pat Vitucci, tell us a bit about how Wall Street has reacted. It's, as I say, been an ongoing roller coaster ride. Yeah, to say, Craig, these are unusual times it just doesn't, uh, doesn't touch the reality of the magnitude of what we've gone through uh, in the latter part of the first quarter, specifically March was just one of those months uh, was uh, incredible. And then April, here we are, May 1st uh, is coming up. And, um, again, best April in 30-plus years. But it doesn't really tell the whole story. As we know, it's a little bit of a, of a um, misstatement. We, we, we went through this giant roller coaster ride. The Dow Jones, mid-February, was 29,000 and change. Went down to 18,000 and change. And now it's hovering around the 24,000 mark. So... It's recovered, Craig, about 59% of its, um, of its losses. Amazingly, because I, this was amidst of the coronavirus numbers just escalating. We really hadn't peaked in some cities for just, uh, just the last couple of days. So, uh, I, I think it's quite a testament to the veracity, the sustainability, the strength, the courage of the American investor kind of sticking with it and buying low as we were all taught to do when markets go on sale, you buy more. And so we've seen this, um, this reaction by institutions and the general public, uh, to buy, buy, buy. And wow, what a roller coaster ride it's been, Craig. To be sure. Now, of course, Pat, this has created a great deal of consternation and frustration for so many investors. Uh, this is uncharted territory, and so trying to ascertain what move do we make next, when to get in, when to get out, how much risk should we engage in, and certainly there's no such thing as you say all the time. There's no such thing as one size fits all. But these are such uncharted waters, I suppose for the average investor, the inclination to run for the doors is probably a very strong one. And yet I have to wonder, could that be as wrought with risk as um, making foolish investments in other arenas? In other words, if you're concerned about the loss and you run for the doors, haven't you locked that loss in? Yeah, you really have. And, and you know, we all, we're all emotionally wired and fear and greed, uh, uh, is in each of our ears, and we're we're anxious. We get nervous, and oh my gosh, I've spent the last forty years saving these precious dollars so I can retire someday. Or you're already retired, and you're seeing your nest egg uh, shrink uh, in a in a, a dramatic fashion. It, it's it's not unusual to think, wow, I better sell and preserve what I have because after all, this is doom and gloom. The sky is falling. Look, in the last 20 years, or last 19 years, we had the dot-com bust of 01. We had the Great Recession of 08, and now the COVID-19 scare. We also had the SARS and Ebola mixed in in between there. Uh, they were all periods of stress and 
how you reacted to that stress really has a significant impact on the long-range sustainability of your portfolio. And, and admittedly, it takes courage and it takes strength to turn the, the TV off, not listen to those Dow Jones numbers, those NASDAQ numbers, the S&P numbers. But we're all kind of news junkies, and we all kind of tune in, and, and uh, sadly we react. And I, I've had a bunch of calls in the last week from, from listeners that said, you know, I, I move all my money to bonds. Well, that was the absolute wrong thing to do. But if, it's, if it gives you a good night's sleep, <coughs> maybe that's, um, that, that supersedes all the other logic that, that, that we normally talk about in, in the financial world. And certainly trying to balance that sense of a good night's rest with your timeline for retirement, your appetite for risk, and what your expectations are for your lifestyle at retirement, those are all very important factors, and no one should lead the pack. In other words, there really needs to be a a very strategic balance across all of them. Isn't that true? Yeah, it it, it really takes... uh a really concerted effort to look at what sectors your portfolio is is currently invested in. Are you in domestic, international, uh, or are you in you in fixed income? Are you in bonds and mortgages? Are you in real estate? It really is time to pull out your portfolio, pull out your last four hundred one k statement, your per statement, your four hundred three b statement, and. Take a look at those allocations, and most importantly, where do you want to be in the next quarter, and where do you want to be in the fall, and where do you want to be near your end? The worst thing you want to do is look back and say, wow, this fund did great last quarter. I'm going to put all my money there. Well, we all know that's called rear view mirror investing, and it, it, it's a recipe for a disaster every time. So you want to prospectively look forward, anticipate where economy is going to be going, what areas are we going to be in greater need? Um, you know, we, saw, we saw earnings from Tesla. We saw earnings from Apple and Amazon. And uh, Amazon, of course, knocking the cover off the ball because those who, who weren't buying online certainly were motivated to get online and become a prime member and, and buy online. And, um, and uh, Jeff Bezos, I think the number is $30 million dollars Per hour is what Amazon is earning. It was it was a a, a four billion dollar period that that he had significant earnings up over and above. So now he's certainly the richest man in America. And um, by the way, his net worth went up thirteen billion dollars. Right? Um, I think yours went up a little less than that, but but he, but yours was close, wasn't it? <laughs> Mindly, just just slightly behind that, just slightly. Now, Pat, you talked about sort of balanced perspective on all of this, and it, certainly we need to look at a number of factors to really gauge where the economy is, where it's going to be headed as we dig out of the impact of the coronavirus. On one hand, good news that the Federal Open Market Committee has decided to leave that benchmark key interest rate near zero, pledged to leave it there at least until the economy recovers. That's good news. And yet there was perhaps a message being sent very discreetly by Wells Fargo when they announced this week that beginning in the month of May, Wells Fargo, one of the nation's largest lenders, 
will be stepping away from the market in the arena of home equity lines of credit. And I suppose some of this tied into the uncertainty related to the coronavirus pandemic and its impact on the economy. But I have to wonder, if they're looking to stay away from HELOCs, is this indicative of a notion that they're concerned there could be a number of foreclosures and they don't want to find themselves as a um, second position uh, uh, creditor? Yeah, I think I think that's it. They're looking back to, to 2008. Almost immediately, all the banks froze all the HELOCs so you could not borrow against your house because the, the logic was it's worth a whole lot less and you're going to be over-leveraged uh, if your home was worth, let's say, a million bucks and now it's worth seven fifty, uh, and you want to add more debt onto that. Well, the the, um, the leveraging increases significantly, so I think they're anticipating a fairly sizable reduction in value of our real estate, and it very well could could be the could be the case, depending upon the longevity of this COVID nineteen and the commensurate shelter in place. Um, if we do get a V-shaped recovery and our real estate just takes a, you know, a short dip with interest rates being very attractive and pent-up demand uh, will be, need to be satisfied after all in the last couple of months. Not too many people are out shopping around for homes. There's, my realtor friends tell me there's all kinds of rules about showing homes and you can't be with them. It's got to be an empty house. And it just made it very, has made it very, cumbersome for realtors to have any success in selling homes. So two months pent-up demand with, with a very attractive interest rate. Uh, if, if we bounce back nicely, we could see um, a giant spike in number of homes sold. And I would suspect Wells Fargo would, in fact, reverse that decision if the dip was short and, uh, and, and shallow. Certainly learning to navigate in these uncharted territory, certainly learning to navigate in these uncharted times is becoming more and more important, particularly from the standpoint of making sure you're making the right decisions in relationship to your financial future. Want some help? Pat Fittucci and Associates, available and always happy to meet with you through the convenience of telephone or by go to meeting on the Internet to take a look at your current portfolio help you ascertain whether or not you are in fact on track for your plans for retirement in relationship to things like your appetite for risk, where the markets are today, where you've invested, what vehicles that you're using right now, and to make sure that you have the appropriate portfolio mix in order to survive these challenging times. Want to know more? Go online to don'tinvestandforget.com. That's don'tinvestandforget.com, where you can there easily schedule your appointment or simply call toll-free 888-PLAN-WISE. That's 888-P-L-A-N-W-I-S-E or at don'tinvestandforget.com. And our thanks to 30-plus-year money manager Pat Fatucci for that update. Pat will visit with you again next week. All right, let's get a look right now at traffic.